We're looking at Romans chapters 9 through 11 this month into next. And here we have a passage where chapter and verse divisions don't help us because we're straddling two chapters, the end of chapter 9, the beginning of chapter 10. But you've, um, you've been tracking with me in chapter 9 thus far. We're, we're talking about really the fate of, of Israel, what will happen to the people God began with. Does he come back around to them? If so, how so? How should we understand this? This is what these three chapters in Romans are concerned with. And actually, you need to understand, this is a major plot line in the Bible. In fact, this passage right here, um, I'm calling it a a big reveal. You've seen those home improvement shows, we're all familiar with them, where living space is renovated, it's transformed, and then uh, the people come back and they get the big reveal and, and see how it looks now. Thinking along that line, God said to the Jewish people, the ethnic descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, he told them that his dwelling place would be among them. Uh, Psalm 76, if you want a a text for that. That was a big reveal. For centuries, uh, the Jewish people essentially had God to themselves, but God chose Abraham and his ethnic descendants through Isaac and Jacob to send the world its Savior, the Lord Jesus. Through that Jewish line, Jewish people have blessed the world and continue. But by the time we get into the New Covenant context, the New Testament, the dwelling place of God is with Gentiles now predominantly. And how did that happen? Well, that's the concern of these chapters. The church is a people in whom God dwells by His Spirit. The church is not facilities. It's not an institution. There's institutional aspects of it. But the church is the people of God in the world from all over the world. And the church also was a big reveal. God's redemptive kindness to Gentiles, those who for centuries were on the outside looking in. These are major plot lines in the Bible, I say again. And I don't know uh, if you're reading Scripture or how you do that. I go through a, a reading plan each year. I've been following this for a couple of decades or so now and it takes me through the Old Testament once and the New Testament Psalms twice, the particular calendar that I use. And it always starts uh, with, uh, with Genesis and Ezra and Matthew and Acts. And so reading in Genesis and Acts this month, uh, first month here of the new year, I've been seeing this Again, things that Paul's dealing with in these three chapters. You go back to Genesis and you read about God's covenant with Abraham. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then you read in the book of Acts, which uh, precedes uh, this book of of Romans. If you're not familiar with the layout of the New Testament, the book of Acts, the, the Acts of the Apostles, Paul in his preaching as it's recorded over and over again in Acts to Jewish audience saying the gospel is now going to the Gentiles and this is not plan B. He tells them that this was always the purpose of God to bless the world through the Jews and that God can even use their disobedience and unfaithfulness to him as a means. This is pretty remarkable when you think about it. Our passage is about this, how and why Gentiles came to inhabit what was built for Jews. How did we get in on the renovation, on the transformation uh, uh, through, through the Jewish people. The central concern in Romans 9 through 11, these chapters, is what does it mean 
For those through whom the gospel has come, through whom the world has been blessed, Jews, for 2,000 years and counting, they've been largely unbelieving in Jesus. And so being that that's the case, that's reality, will they ever get Jesus? Will God extend redemptive mercies to them in the future as he did in the past? The answer is yes, and it's happening in the present among a remnant. Paul talks about that here. But literally, we've seen it already in chapter 9. Just look back for a moment at the beginning of chapter 9 that Paul is literally at pains to establish this point. Chapter 9, verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Verse 3, I, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And then you get to chapter 10 where we are, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is for the Jewish people, is that they may be saved. There's always been a remnant of Jewish believers in Jesus, and, and that remnant will grow, and it will grow rather exponentially, it would seem, before Jesus' return. Paul speaks to this in chapter 11. We'll come to it in a couple of weeks. But God is not unfaithful to the people that he began with, though they have been unfaithful to him. What's our takeaway from that? Why do we look back at Israel and, and, and note what happened there? Because, as I quoted to you, Frederick Buechner, we are just like the Jews, only more so. And if we look back and see the, God, the, the people that God originally began with, he is still faithful to. Our big takeaway from this is he will not be unfaithful to us either, though he endures our unfaithfulness also. Now, it's important to understand when just a theological point here when we're talking about this. They're not two people of God, Jews and then Gentiles. I don't believe Gentiles replace Jews as the new or true Israel. If anyone is the true Israel, it's Jesus himself. I get that from John 15 where he calls himself the true vine. The vine was the symbol of Israel. Jesus was saying, I'm the true Israel. I'm the one in whom the nation uh, hopes uh, uh, revolve. There's one people of God. It begins with ethnic Jews, the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. It expands. Even in the Old Testament, you see uh, that Gentiles can, uh, can, can proselyte uh, into the nation. You see that in the book of Acts, the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8, the centurion in Acts chapter 10. These are Gentiles who are God-fearers. They fear Israel's God. That is, they revere him. They awe in awe of him. They, they worship him. They do good to his people, the ethnic people. But then... The people of God is now the church as we know it, made up of someone from everyone, Jew and Gentile. This is the way the Bible sees people, Jew and Gentile. And yet, here's the question that these chapters are concerned with. If the people God originally chose to put his dwelling place among, if they get characterized by unbelief, rejecting the one God sent them, Jesus, if they stumbled over the stumbling stone, you see the passage there. The, it's, a, it's a mashup of Isaiah there in, verses, uh, in verse 33, last chapter or last verse in chapter 9. If, as Paul puts it, they stumble, does that constitute a fall unrecoverable? There's stumbling and there's falling. Are they cut off from the mercy of God with forever finality? And Paul says in these chapters, no, absolutely not. He said it's difficult to watch them in their, in their hard-heartedness toward God. 
that they have a form of godliness but deny its power. He said that's difficult for him as a, as a Jewish believer to, to watch. But God is more generous with his mercy than any of us really know. But we are also a lot worse than we think we are. And this is also a big takeaway when we look back at Israel. We, all of us, are a lot worse than we think we are. We are just like the Jews, only more so, which is why mercy matters. The big reveal in this passage before us is Jews were actually a lot worse than they thought they were. It's assumed the Gentiles were already there. But comparatively, Jews had every advantage with God over us. Look back at it again. Early part of chapter 9, verse 4. To them belong adoption, glory, covenants, giving of the law, worship, promises. Verse 5, patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And yet by the end of chapter 9, what do you get? Chapter 9, verse 31. Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why not? Verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it, as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. Look down at verse 3 in chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 3. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. He's so ignorant. What do you mean by ignorant there in verse 3, chapter 10? Obviously, it's not the ignorance of no knowledge. It's not the ignorance of unintelligence. What kind of ignorance is it? It's the ignorance of arrogance. Arrogance. By the time Jesus came to Abraham's descendants, he met with stiff arrogance in their cities and towns. He called them the lost sheep of Israel. An arrogance Paul knew well because he embodied it in himself at one time. An arrogance that demonstrated itself in, in their having the word of God and yet changing the word of God to suit themselves. You don't think this doesn't still happen? How did they change it? Look at verse 2, chapter 10, verse 2. He says, um, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And it's not that they didn't know. He's not talking about the ignorance of not knowing or the ignorance of unintelligence. He's talking about the ignorance of arrogance. They came to believe in self-righteousness. This was how they, they changed the Word of God. You find in the Word of God a righteousness that is naturally alien to us and that we need to get, and how do we get it? Through Christ. And in the Old Covenant arrangement, it was through this promised one who would raise up for the nation like Moses, and the people would listen to him, and that would be Jesus. It's not that they didn't know. It's that they came to believe in self-righteousness. That if they worked hard enough at being good enough for God, if they revered Abraham and Moses, if they were zealous for temple and law, then they were righteous. And Paul says in verse 3 here in chapter 10, chapter 10 verse 3, that was the equivalent of seeking to establish their own righteousness. This is an age-old problem. It is not isolated to Israel alone. We're to learn from them, looking back at them, because we're not so different from them. We Tennesseans and Alabamans and Mississippians. 
and Georgians living here in the Bible Belt, the Christ-haunted South, as Flannery O'Connor called it. For a group of younger preachers recently, I characterized my own preaching as radio-free Bible Belt. I got that from somebody else. But in other words, my preaching is to preach the gospel to the church. Jews blazed the trail of self-righteous unfaithfulness to God, but we can take the same way too, particularly in this region of the country. Paul will say in chapter 11 to us Gentiles, most of us in this room are Gentiles. He will say it to us in chapter 11. We'll come to it. Don't think you're immune from doing the same thing Jews did, that is, believing in self-righteousness, misconstruing and distorting the Word of God in order to justify yourself, in order to box God in around your scruples. What did Israel do? They put all of their righteousness stock in themselves. They bypassed the way of righteousness given to them in Scripture. Oh, they, they, they kept up with the rituals, but they missed the heart of it. Jesus comes and preaches, and he says, you know, you, you've got the letter of the law, but you've completely missed the Spirit. What, what is his Sermon on the Mount but an extended meditation on the Ten Commandments? You've heard that it was said, but I tell you. And he wasn't changing it. He was saying, what you've missed is what's at the heart of this. Yeah, God doesn't want you killing each other, but he also wants you to, to uh, not get caught up in the anger that leads to the action. God wants you to, to, to not commit adultery, but, but uh, that doesn't mean that, that everything is, is fine with, with, with lust. C.S. Lewis said, when you look at uh, uh, ham and eggs, you've committed breakfast in your heart. When you look at ham and eggs lustfully, you know. It's one of the great lines of all time. This is what Israel did. It's in our text. But Gentiles aren't immune from this either. Now, he, he really, he's setting us up because he's really going to bring this home in chapter 11. In fact, in chapter 11, it gets a little, it gets a little scary because he says, look, if, if God didn't spare Israel, he may not spare the Gentiles either. And you go, what do you mean? Well, we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 11. But we too misconstrue the Word of God in order to establish our own righteousness, to pave our own way with God, to pave our own way to God. Anytime we take a secondary matter and make it a primary matter, and we're great at that. Anytime we add to grace, he'll say to us in chapter 11, let no Gentile ever boast in his belief over a Jew because no Gentile is ever that far removed from our own exhibited unfaithfulness. God sees it all and we have no business being arrogant. Nobody. Now, some of you might be sinking a little bit here. Arrogance? Man, I'm barely holding on. I need encouragement. That's what I came here for this morning. You do need encouragement, and this passage is encouraging in its own way. I hope you see. I don't want to beat you up or assume that you're arrogant. But what I want us to understand and what we need to understand is, is how deep the desire to establish our righteousness goes in us also. This is a human condition. It shows up first in Israel. They just went first this way. But we've gone right along behind them. Ethnic Israel under the old covenant arrangement fell into a temptation that also appeals to us because it's so self-flattering. The idea that if we work hard enough... 
at being good enough for God, that'll be enough. It's, it's our default setting. It, it's, the, it's the program that comes in our software. That's an idea. That's the, to put it in the original analogy, that, that's, a, that's a living space that needs renovation, transformation by Jesus moving in on it, by Jesus moving on us. Good thing he specializes in just that. There's two things I want to give you from this uh, sermon. Two questions. How do we come to the idea that we can be good enough for God? And then what do we do about it? That's the two things that I want us to deal with in this sermon. First, how do we come to the idea that we can be good enough for God? And then second, what do we do about it? So first, how do we come to the idea that we can be good enough for God? Israel, as I've been saying, is a warning to heed on this point. The tragedy of ancient Israel under the Old Covenant was they came to long for a Messiah they preferred. They wanted a political conqueror, a strong man. And so they missed the Messiah who actually came, the one they needed, because what they wanted him to do was call out Rome and judge Rome for, for, for her sins, not pay for Rome's sins, and Israel's too. And ours, in a once-for-all sacrifice, foreshadowed in the law of Moses. Most people in Jesus' day concluded they did not want Jesus as he was presenting himself to them. They knew better than God what the nation needed. And so would we have done. We of Italian stock and German stock and Irish and Scandinavian, we Asians and Africans, we wouldn't have done any better if it had been us in their place in their time. Tragedy of Israel is they adopted the idea that they could be and needed to be good enough for God on their own. They just went first in that. It was easier for them to think that being Jewish was automatically uh, in with God, but God took Israel as his own to teach them, painstakingly, graciously, to teach them and through them teach us that he requires faith. They were descendants of patriarchs and prophets and priests, yes, but patriarchs, prophets, and priests who were looking forward in faith to Jesus. Notice again how Paul says, end of chapter 9 here, verse 30, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. This is a huge subject biblically. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. Always. The content of faith changes between the Testaments, but not the fact of faith. Under the Old Covenant, faith is forward-looking. In the New Covenant, it looks back to the time of Christ and forward to His return. It's never been about good works or otherwise generated goodness, uh, if, we can, if we can get enough of that going, that we commend ourselves to God. It was, it was never to be that for Israel. But that's how Israel distorted God's word to them. They made it about themselves being pleasing to God. They came to believe in self-righteousness. Keeping the law was never how you established your righteousness. It was how you expressed your faith in God 
until Jesus came to reveal God in flesh and fulfill the laws, every requirement flawlessly. This is why he says down in verse 4, chapter 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What does that mean? It means the law is no longer the way one demonstrates the obedience of faith. You realize that, that phrase, obedience of faith, it bookends Romans? I showed that to you way back in the beginning a year ago. Let's take a look back at it. Chapter 1, verse 5. I just want you to see this. Hold your place in uh, chapters 9 and 10 here. Look back at chapters uh, 1, and then we're going to look at chapter 16, because I want to show you the bookends of Romans. It's the same phrase. Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Through whom, Jesus Christ, our Lord, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about, here's the line, the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. The obedience of faith. Now, if you go to the very last chapter in Romans, chapter 16, verse 26. But now, this mystery, uh, the gospel has been disclosed, 1626. And through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about, there it is again, the obedience of faith. How do you get the obedience of faith? Chapter 10, verse 4 says, Christ is the end of the law, so there might be righteousness for everyone who believes. In other words, obedience is now connected to Christ, not to law. I obey not to get God's blessing. That's the covenant conditions of the law of Moses. Obey and be blessed. Disobey and be cursed. Christ comes and obeys on my behalf and I get God's blessing because of what he's done because he takes God's curses upon himself for me as well. Obedience has always been the way that we demonstrate our faith. Under the old covenant, the law was the, the main way you demonstrated your faith. Under the, the new covenant, there's the law of Christ, which takes a lot of the Old Testament law and brings it into the new covenant context. But the law confronts us with our inability to flawlessly obey because the law shows us the pristine, holy character of God up against which my character doesn't shine so well. My good enough isn't good enough for God. And not because God is ornery and hard to please and this sort of ogreish kind of being and wants to rage at people. No, it's because God is that holy and that good through and through and through. That's why my good enough isn't good enough. Remember what sin is? Sin is the human propensity to mess things up, that great street definition of sin. God gives his law. Remember what the law is? We looked at this in Romans chapter 7, verse 12. The law is holy, righteous, and good. That's what Paul calls it in Romans 7. The law is holy, righteous, and good. And he gives his law to his old covenant people who are already under a promise. The promise given to Abraham. Through them, the world would be blessed. But they took that law as we would have taken that law. And they did not look through it at God, but at it. At themselves. Let me illustrate that. I've used a similar illustration before, but late in 2017, Lynn and I were out west and we stayed with a friend whose home has this sweeping view of, uh, of a mountain range. It's in uh, Utah, beautiful place. Uh, on one side of his living room, all these windows looking out over, you know, Purple Mountain Majesty. There's a 
famous ski slope in the distance you can see where some of the Olympics uh, happened in Salt Lake uh, back in 02. I, you know, I love going out west. It just cleanses my soul. I, I, don't, I don't know what it is about it, you know. I'm thankful God made me a southerner, but if he if he'd not done that, I would have wanted to be a westerner. Now, what if while we're staying there in our friend's house with this majestic view, he's got 20 acres and it just, it's just, you know, you got elk and all this stuff happening out there, mountain lions, you know, moving around. It's quite a place. And what if while we're staying there, I begin to notice on the windows there, the, well, there's a few spider webs, streaks from rain and dust, smudge prints here and there. And what if I decided I couldn't stand that and I, I got to clean those windows? I'm that kind of house guest, I guess, you know, let's say I'm not really, but let's say I am. And so I get a, you know, a squeegee and, and uh, cleaners and a bucket and towels and I, and I go out and I turn my back on the majestic view behind me to look at the windows and I start to clean them and I get them cleaned off as best I can. And the next day I wake up and walk out in the living room and I look at the windows again. Did anything mess up my work? And sure enough, some beetle left a little dirt trail on my clean window. Some insect looked like she gave birth on, on another part of the window. And there's some frost, and that's going to streak the windows. And I go back out there, and I clean again. Back to the view. Next day, uh, Lynn is sitting out there with her coffee and invites me to sit with her and take in the glorious view. Come sit with me. And even offers to give me a kiss, and I cannot refuse that from Lynn. Except at this moment, I go, would you look at these windows? And I turn around and say, i got to go back in and i got to clean these windows. The last night's shower streaked them. And how did the birds get that on the window? And all of the ways there are to dirty up these windows. What if that went on day after day? What have I done? I haven't been cleaning those windows so that the view of creation outside of them is as clear as they can be. No, I've been cleaning those windows so that when I look at them, I don't see anything on them. And that's not the purpose of those windows. Those purpose, the purpose of the windows is for me to look through them. I'm missing why the windows are there. And that's essentially what happened to Israel with God's law. The law was given to them as a people to look out deep and wide and be awed at a God, a holy being, entirely self-sufficient, who would want them and would love them and would bring them into his counsel and his company and would finally bless the world with a Savior who is Christ the Lord through them. Somewhere along the way and in places, they stopped looking through the law at the majesty of God and started looking at the law and thereby missed who God promised to be for them. How we come to have the idea that our good enough is good enough for God is we make righteousness more about ourselves staying clean than the view of, of, of himself God has given us in Jesus. And look, I want to stay clean. I want to obey. But even for me to do that successfully depends on God. Absolutely depends on God. Now the second thing and concluding, what do we do about it? If how we get the idea that we can be good enough for God is we come to believe in self-righteousness, then what do we do about it? Chapter 10, verse 3. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. 
What we do about it is we throw ourselves entirely there on God's righteousness. We put ourselves entirely with him. Nothing to the cross I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's, that's not a cliche or a, plea, a platitude. That's, that's gospel. You and I have to get a better good enough than our own that we can generate on our own. We have to get a better good enough. And that comes from outside ourselves. You know, I love Narnia. I'm not embarrassed to say so. C.S. Lewis paints a scene in the last battle where, where Lucy, the little queen, along with her sister and her two brothers, the kings of Narnia, they, she asks Aslan, Lucy asks Aslan to uh, intervene with the dwarfs because the dwarfs are really difficult. Being that they can't appreciate anything about Narnia, in fact, it, it doesn't even uh, appear that they can even acknowledge that they're in Narnia, and they, they misinterpret everything Aslan tells them. Aslan, of course, is the Christ figure lion in those stories. And in this section I'll, I'll read to you, Aslan has to tell Lucy what he can and cannot do for the dwarfs. It's a parable of the effect of self-righteousness on us. Dearest, said Aslan, I will show you both what I can and cannot do. He came close to the dwarfs and gave a long growl, low, but it set the air shaking. But the dwarfs said to one another, do you hear that? That's the gang at the other end of the stable. They're trying to frighten us. They do it with a machine of some kind. They won't take us in. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly, a glorious feast appeared on the dwarfs' knees. Everything the dwarfs loved eating before them. And a goblet of good wine in, in the right hand of each dwarf, but it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear they couldn't taste it properly. They thought they were eating and drinking only the sort of things you might find in a stable. In fact, they think, Mar they think Narnia is a big barn. One said he was trying to eat hay, and another said it tasted like a piece of old turnip, and a third said he, he's got raw cabbage leaf in his mouth. And then they raised their golden goblets of rich red wine from Aslan himself to their lips and said, oh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a, a donkey's trough. Never thought we'd come to this. Soon every dwarf began suspecting that every other dwarf had something nicer than he had, and they started grabbing and snatching and went on quarreling and a few minutes later, there was a food fight, and all the good food was smeared on their faces and clothes and trodden underfoot. But when at last they sat down to nurse their black eyes and bleeding noses, they all said, Well, at any rate, nobody's taken us in today. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. You see, said Aslan, looking at Lucy, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds. Yet they are in that prison. Self-righteousness is a prison. If Jesus isn't enough for you with God, nothing ever will be, including yourself. Paul mourned for his ethnic brothers and sisters because along the way the Jews came to be for the Jews. And Paul said that's a tragedy. Considering all they had to go on with God, it's a tragedy they came to believe in self-righteousness just like many Southerners do today. 
Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I pray the same for my people, for Tennesseans and Alabamans and Mississippians and Georgians who go to churches among the pines and think ourselves God's almost chosen people. But we too come to believe in self-righteousness. We too have a form of godliness but deny the power of the Lord Jesus Christ animating it. We too get all this religion and we miss that it's about Jesus. They did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. The remnant of Jews will grow. That's the good news for Jews in these three chapters. And they'll grow just as our numbers have. And the reason why is the faithful mercies of God, gospel grace. But if they can count on that from Christ still to come, How much more do we count on it already in Christ who came through them to us? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this word from your word and thank you for great grace and mercy that you've shown us. Because when we look at Israel, we see ourselves. We're not better off. We're not nobler. We're not smarter. We're people who chose our lostness We're quite happy in it until we weren't. We're quite content being on our own until we realized that was our death. Thank you for intervening on us. Thank you, Lord, for uh, giving us your son and for the hope of the world revolving around him. As we look at these passages, Lord, where Israel is held up as an example of unbelief and where not to go, We are less than honest if we don't realize that we can go there ourselves, even this side of the cross. And so, Lord, we ask your help. We ask your grace to be renewed in us, that we would keep short accounts. We would be characterized by repentance and faith, believing, and that we would prize and value who Jesus is and that we would grow to love him, that we would not be like the dwarfs being for the dwarfs, misinterpreting every sign and signal of your love and care for us. But we would be those who enjoy the feast and enjoy the one who gives it. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you are a rock for us for all time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.